Daniel chapter 8. We're back in our look at the book of Daniel together here on Sunday morning, a series we've entitled A Stranger in a Strange Land. How appropriate is that title for what we're going through today? And now we resume here in chapter 8. And I'd like to begin a little differently by reading verse 27 together before we start. Verse 27 of chapter 8 of the book of Daniel. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterwards I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Have you ever gone to a movie or turned on a television show and the first five minutes of that show is the ending and then they flip back, you know, and you're like, great, what's the point, you know? I already know how it ends. But something has troubled Daniel like we haven't seen before anywhere throughout this book. He's been concerned, but to this point... He has never admitted that what he saw, the vision that God gave him, led him to be sick for several days and fainted. What did Daniel see? What does it mean? As we begin to read chapter 8 together, it is important for you and I to know that throughout the Old Testament, God has interwoven amongst the characters, the the scenarios, the kings, the prophets, what are known to be types and shadows. Types are individual illustrations through the life of an individual that is similar to one who will be revealed later in the New Testament. For example, throughout the New Testament, Moses is called a type of Jesus Christ for the deliverance of God's people. But there are also those things called shadows. And a shadow is just that. It precedes that which is coming next. Of course, we've all seen those horror movies where that one sap always finds themselves in a dark alley in the middle of night, right? It's like, what are you doing there, buddy? You have nothing else left to do? I mean, let's be honest, you deserve to get killed in the first five minutes of the movie if you're walking like that in the middle of nowhere. And of course, every time they're walking down, you can already tell they're fearful and there's anticipation that something bad is going to happen. And then they all of a sudden see it approaching them. There's this shadow of this uh, ungodly figure coming at them and you're just waiting in all anticipation. And right before they show it, they cut to another scene. Types and shadows. Woven through the eighth chapter of the book of Daniel is the prophecy concerning the rise of one called Anicus Epiphanes. He is a successor to the four generals that assumed the Greek Empire after the sudden death of Alexander the Great. This one, Anicus Epiphanes, is going to torment the Jewish people like they've never seen before, going as far as to defile the temple by raising a statue of Zeus within it, the history tells us, 
sacrificing a pig on the altar, defiling the temple, and will re- uh, re- you know, just wreak havoc in Jerusalem until one named Judas Maccabeus rises up, resisted, resists him, and throws him out of Jerusalem. Of course, from that event, we get the fe- Feast of Lights, which we now know as Hanukkah. But woven in the tapestry of the profile of Anarchus Epiphanes is another. Another one who is still yet to come. Another one that we still anticipate to this day. We know him as the Antichrist. So let us begin in verse 1 of chapter 8 and find what brought Daniel to such torment concerning this vision. Now in the third year reign of King Belshazzar, now Daniel has stepped backwards. He has uh, gone back to record the two visions given him directly rather than him just simply interpreting the visions given to the kings. A vision appeared to me, to me Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time, which is recorded in chapter 7 which we looked at last time together. And I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw the vision that I was by the river Ulai. This is an area that didn't belong to the Babylonian community. It was a nothing area at the time in which Daniel speaks of it. Now, I don't believe that he's there physically, but it is where he is seeing this vision spiritually. This area would eventually become the capital of the Persian Empire. And so God places him here so he may see the vision that God is about to give him. In verse 3, And then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns. And the two horns were high, meaning they were great, they were big in size. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. When the Medes and the Persians joined forces, the Medes were the dominant empire, But after a while, Persia succeeded them and grew even stronger, which we'll find that these are are what's represented by these two horns. Horns are people of authority, individuals that God has placed for a purpose in the grand scheme of his plan. So the ram now we find represents, and we'll see clearly in just a moment, represents the Mede and the Persian Empire. Verse 4. And I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. And he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, considering suddenly a male goat, aren't you glad you came to church today? Male goats, rams, horns, came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, meaning this male goat moves swiftly. And like 
the ram, the male goat, also will represent an empire. Across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. So the goat had one large horn. This horn will represent Alexander the Great. And of course, the male goat represents the Greek Empire, which moved so rapidly and so quickly, and of course, displaced the Mede and the Persian Empire. How many of you right now wish you would have paid attention in history in high school? Didn't think it was so important, did you? Verse 6, then he came and to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. And therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he had become strong, the large horn was broken. This represents the death of Alexander the Great. And in its place of it, four notable ones. Now, please understand that we are about 250 years before all these events actually take place. We're at about 551 B.C., and these events will take place in the 600 and 700 B.C.s, 200-some years later. So this is all prophetic that God is revealing to Daniel. Now, in place of the horn that was broken, the great one, the Alexander the Great, notice that God predicts or shows Daniel, that four notable ones, and these are the four generals that he leaves the Greek Empire to, came up towards the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east and towards the glorious land, which is, of course, a term for Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the hosts, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. And he did all this and prospered. And then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgressions of desolations? the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to trample underfoot. And he said to me, 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, we know that Anicus Epiphany arose from one of the regions of the four generals that the Greek Empire was divided into four regions. He came out of one of those regions. 
And he assaulted the Jewish people greatly, tormented them greatly. In 165, he came against Jerusalem, and it was then, December 14th, 165 B.C., that he resurrected a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, um, in, in the temple, slaughtered a pig, and for three, just over three and a half years, the temple was defiled, the Jewish people were persecuted, the law of Moses was forbidden and illegal to read or to own, and Anicus Epiphanes reigned in tyranny from Jerusalem because it was his objective to make the Jewish people conform to the Greek and Grecian culture. And when they resisted through the Maccabeans, and Judas the Maccabee came and he came to resist and overcame Anicus Epiphanes. By 163 BC, December 14th roughly, the temple was purified again. The 2,300 days may be misleading until you understand the Hebrew word for days there. It means morning and evenings. And so most scholars believe that what they are talking about is 1,150 days, which would be just over, or just the, the amount of time between 165 and 163 that would allow for this event to take place. And we will see that this chapter specifically speaks of the rise of Anicus Epiphanes. His slaughter of the Jewish, Jewish people, his ransacking of the temple, creating the transgression of desolation, which now some call the abomination of desolation. He's a type. He's a shadow of one who is still yet to come. Why do I say that? Because when you turn to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus warns the disciples. And of course, this is after all of these events had already transpired. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation take place, well, wait a minute. It already did through Anicus Epiphanes. No, that was a prelude of things still yet to come. That was a type, that was a shadow of events that are still yet going to take place in Jerusalem. And Jesus warns them after the fact. So the event that we read of here in Daniel chapter 8 is simply a precursor, as I had just mentioned, to what ultimately will fulfill it, and that is the arrival of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is one of the most anticipated figures in all the New Testament. John told us that during his day, the spirit of Antichrist was already at work. But he still anticipated one coming. When we talk about Antichrist, we are not talking about that he's simply the opposite of Jesus. He is one who tries to replace Jesus. Revelation chapter 13 tells us very clearly that the Antichrist will suffer what appears to be a mortal wound, meaning a wound that will appear to kill him, and then he'll rise again. Boy, I think I read that someplace else, don't you? 
And after rising again, the Bible tells us it is at that moment that Satan will indwell him and plunge the world into a three and a half year period of time known as the Great Tribulation Period. And though the Jews are being warned about Anicus Epiphany's arrival, which will happen hundreds of years later, woven throughout it all is a greater warning. A warning that Jesus points us to. He says, when you see that which is written about by Daniel, the abomination of desolation, I'm sure the disciples were taken back by that statement, thinking that that event had already taken place. The prophecy fulfillment in the book of Daniel is so accurate that many, since its arrival, since it's been written, have claimed that no, it couldn't have been written when it was because it's too accurate in its prophetic fulfillment. It must have been written somewhere in the 200 AD era and therefore just simply recording historical facts based on hindsight. But the Word of God tells us that we can trust it to be the inspired Word of God by the prophetic fulfillment found within it. This is what separates this book from every other religious text throughout the entire world. God telling us what's going to happen before it happens. And if everything that Daniel has been given came to fruition perfectly just as God said it would... Can we be confident that what he says is still yet going to happen is going to happen exactly as he states it will happen? And the answer is, of course, a resounding yes. A resounding yes. So we'll just leave it there. I'm sure you get it. Well, Daniel didn't. And we may still be somewhat unclear by its interpretation i mean and why god revealed it in the way that he did so of course god sends one to daniel to help him understand verse 15 and then it happened when i daniel had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning aren't you glad that someone like daniel who knew the word of god so thoroughly at that time still was confused by some of these things I love the disciples for many different reasons that followed Jesus. They were some of the most real people ever found in the scriptures. I love when Jesus would teach these profound things, how often they had to ask him afterwards what that meant. And do you notice that Jesus was never upset with them for asking but simply told him what the parable meant or what he meant by this or that. It's never wrong to ask God a question. I do not believe that it is wrong to, or a demonstration of a lack of faith to ask God a question concerning what is the meaning of his word. I think it is very interesting that often When I hear individuals talk about God's Word, there's the assumption that everybody should know it and be at the same place in their spiritual journey as they are. When in actuality, God is so different than that. He's always encouraging us to further grow in our knowledge of Him. 
He told the disciples, there are many things I want to tell you, but yet I can't, you can't handle them. You can't handle the truth. I had to do that. (laughs) Sorry, I hate when those things just come out like that, you know. The exorcism will be at 1130. No. (laughs) And yet it's so true. It's so true. We can't handle everything at once. Why? We would become sick like Daniel did if we saw it all. Reading the book of Revelation used to be a very exciting event for me until I started realizing the actual carnage that will take place during the judgment of God. And many would say, well, that is so unfair for God to judge that way. But, you know, what more could God have done to save his creation than to send his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life? So Daniel, seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the the Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So God speaking to Gabriel. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. I, I, I would too, right? First probably wetting myself and then falling on my face. Don't tell anybody I said that. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Okay, that's a context we didn't ex- expect right away. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep, and my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. Things are not always going to continue as they are. It's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. God will eventually intercede in His timing, in His way, according to His plan. Many today find that the status quo is comforting, even if the status quo is uncomfortable or wrong. But because of the familiarity of the status quo in any situation, it's often more comforting than the unknown. But God says there will come a time when all of this will end. Now, your perspective on the end is a direct result of where your heart is with God. For you and I who are in Christ, we see it as John did and say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. But for those who are not believers, this is the best that's ever going to be for them. And so they look and either will mock or they'll jest or they'll try to dismiss it. And some will even experience fear knowing that the judgment of God will take place. At the end of an individual's life or at the end of the story of this world, God will intercede. In verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 20. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of the Media and Persia. So very clearly, 
exactly as we stated. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. Now again, this is hundreds of years. Belshazzar is still king in Babylon. And of course, when you come to Daniel 5, the Medes and the Persians are already outside the gates of Babylon, ready to overcome it. Now the large horn that is between its eyes, that is of the male goat, is the first king. This is representing Alexander the Great. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of the nation, but not with its power. Once the Greek Empire became four separate regions, the generals couldn't get along. They weren't able to continue the cohesion of these various regions, and it weakened in its power, and I believe this weakness is what allowed the Romans to come in so thoroughly. You can read that for yourself in history. But then we come to verse 23. And what we find is that now God gives us a profile, initially speaking of Anarchus Epiphanes, but something greater, something more. My daughter and I used to love a show called Criminal Minds. Maybe you used to watch it yourself. Until it got kind of creepy and gross. But we used to love when they used to come together and profile the killer to give us an understanding of how they think and who they are and where they came from, etc. And that's exactly what God does here. He begins to profile for us one that we can still anticipate coming. And in the latter time of their kingdom... It doesn't necessarily mean that this is contained to the kingdom of the Greeks, but scholars believe that it can also refer to the first vision that Daniel was given in Daniel chapter 7 about all the kingdoms that will conclude with the ten toes and be eliminated and destroyed by the coming of the stone which represented Christ himself. He says, when the transgressions have reached their fullness, meaning when God says it's enough's enough, at that moment a king shall arise. Now this king, notice what he says here, will have feast, fierce, excuse me, features. English words often don't accurately portray Hebrew and Greek words. Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, we find Aramaic in the Bible, are much more complex languages. And words in Hebrew and in Greek and in Aramaic can have multiple dimensions to them. Think of it this way. The English word may be a two-dimensional word, where Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic may be multiple-dimensional words, meaning there are different perspectives. And what causes us to look at the proper perspective of that word to know its meaning at any given time is the context in which we find it in the original language. Fierce features means that he is a man of insolence, excessive, powerful, strong. The countenance of his face would say that he is just a person of resolve, determination, persistence, a man who doesn't take no for an answer, a man who is feared. These fierce features are accompanied with an intellectual mind. 
who understands sinister schemes, wicked plottings, enigmas. One Hebrew scholar went on to say that more accurately, it could be he's incredibly efficient at problem solving. Many believe that when the Antichrist begins to raise in the first three and a half years of his reign, he will bring answers to some of the most perplexing, perplexing questions and issues and dilemmas in this world. He will finally tell us which came first, the chicken or the egg. He's going to answer the questions for mankind. He's going to look and appear to be a saving politician. He's going to have great intellect. He's going to have wisdom like we haven't seen maybe since Solomon. And he's going to use it, notice as the profile continues, his power shall be mighty, but notice, but not by his own power. He's going to be empowered by something else. And we know that's something else to be Satan, according to the book of Revelation. He shall destroy fearfully, meaning he's going to conquer without conscience. And he, will, he shall destroy, I'm sorry, he shall prosper and thrive, meaning he will seem unstoppable. He shall destroy the mighty, those are the mighty of this earth, that the earth sees to be mighty and powerful, he will bring them down, and also he will wage against the holy people, the Jewish people, in the city of Jerusalem and Israel. In verse 25, it says that through his cunning, notice what it says, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. Not only will he personally prosper from deceit, and that deception is, is that he is going to cause people to believe one thing is going to happen if they subject themselves and if they do what he says that they should do, only to find out that it's going to end in their own personal destruction. For example, in Revelation chapter 13, the Bible tells us clearly that the Antichrist will impose upon the people of this earth a mark either on their right hand or on their forehead. Without it, they will not be able to buy or sell on Amazon. And as a result, without this mark, they will be greatly inhibited in being able to do normal life things. Their mark will be requested as they get to the entrance of a restaurant or they get to the uh, gate of an airplane, etc. You know what I'm saying here. And they will show this mark, which will allow them. If they do not have the mark, it's not that they will just simply be turned away. It's they will be arrested and destroyed, killed for not having that mark. The Bible tells us that those who do receive the mark, who think that they are just simply interacting with the world's society around them at that time, buying and selling, meaning doing business, living their lives, but in actuality, the Bible tells us that when that mark hits their hand or on their forehead, there is no possibility for salvation in Jesus Christ. That's deceit. 
That is deception. And he will prosper through it and it will appear to go unchecked. He will exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity at the height of their power and their affluential uh, interaction with the world around them. He'll bring them to nothing. And he shall even rise against the prince of princes. We know that it will all end in the valley of Megiddo as the Antichrist and his forces come against those who come from the east to battle with those who come from the east and while within that battle that we know is the battle of Armageddon, the clouds will open, the sky will crack and one on a white horse shall return and eliminate the Antichrist with the, word of his, with the word of his mouth. You're done. And he shall be broken. Notice this. Notice that it's right after the phrase before it, that he shall rise against the prince of, peace, uh, prince of princes, excuse me, and he shall be broken without human means. It won't be a human. It will be God who will bring him to an end. And the vision of the evenings and mornings... That's why I believe the 230 days represent 1,150 days, actually, evening and mornings, which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. And afterwards, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision. But no one understood it. Daniel saw what he saw. He was given the explanation that he was given, and yet he didn't have a context to put it in yet. He knew it was something that was still yet going to happen. And we're not just talking about the Medes and the Persians, which were in the immediate going to succeed the Babylonians. We were talking about the empire after them, the Greeks, and the death of their leader, Alexander the Greek. Great, excuse me. And then, out of the four generals who take the four regions of the Greek, and, Greek, uh, Greek Empire, one was going to come, Anicus Epiphanes. So Daniel's saying, this is not going to happen for a while, but yet there's something more going on here. Something bigger. Something more incredible. It's interesting that in Daniel chapter 7, we are, we are given the title of the little horn expressing the rise of one in the very last days who is going to come to power out of the ten nations that will be the ten nation superpower at the time in which the Antichrist rises. Here in chapter 8, the little horn now is given greater detail about who he is and what one can expect by his arrival. But nothing gives us more detail than Paul in the New Testament. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, I'd just like to quickly read this with you, if I may. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 quickly. Paul the Apostle made it abundantly clear that one is coming in the future that was anticipated in Daniel chapter 7 and in Daniel chapter 8. 
And here he gives the new church there in Thessalonica a further understanding of this individual. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by a word or a letter, as if it was uh, as if it was from us, excuse me, as though the day of Christ had come. The Thessalonians were given a letter, apparently, forged, signed by one who claimed to be Paul, saying that their troubles, their tribulations, were a result of the fact that they were currently in the day of the Lord. Paul said, no, that's not true. And he made it clear that certain events must take place first before that day comes. Verse 3. He says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. There will be an apostasy from Christ. And the man of sin, here is this individual, the little horn that we talked about is revealed. The son of perdition, one of many titles that the Antichrist carries. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The Antichrist in the rebuilt temple will exalt himself to be worshipped as God. Just as Anakis Epiphanes exalted the statue of Zeus, this individual will exalt himself within that temple. And he says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Paul's saying there's something restraining the arrival of the Antichrist. Holding him back. Keeping him at bay. What is that? And then he says in verse 7. He says, For the mystery of the lawless one is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken away. Many have wondered if the pandemic is playing into the end time scenario. The answer is yes, in the fact that it is conditioning people to prepare themselves for such an event. The illogical rationale that is being displayed amongst people today is shocking to me. Just shocking to me. People are reacting in a way like I have never seen them react before. Willing to just submit to apparently no end to governing authorities who have not warranted that trust in doing so. And as a result, we find ourselves in a time like never before. Is it hard for you to imagine that one day the Antichrist will, pl- will you know, require an individual to take a mark on the forehead or on, its, on their hand to buy or sell? Now, 10 years ago, you may, you know, I just don't see that happening. Do you see it happening today? Yeah. How probable it actually is now? Remember, there's always a difference between possible and probable. Possible means, can it happen? Sure, but what are the chances of it happening? Probable. 
And that's what we see now. We see people are being conditioned for such a thing. The riots and the protests that's going on around the world is astonishing, and we never hear about it here in the United States. Why is that? Incredible to me. Resisting the mandates and so forth that are being lever uh, leveraged against the people of those nations. But he says here, one is restraining him and will do so until he is taken away. Now, we're just going to jump to the answer because of time's sake. I believe this is referring to the Holy Spirit working through the church of God. And the removal of the church will happen at the rapture of the church. After the rapture of the church, literally, and excuse my French, all hell is going to break out on this earth. Not right away. It's going to be gradual. For the first three and a half years, the Antichrist will seem to bring this incredible peace into the world. And then he will be mortally wounded. He'll rise again and then be filled with Satan and plunge the world into a time like we've never seen before. But one is restraining him. In verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, not by human hands, remember what Daniel said, and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. There's going to be a supernatural element to him. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Now, for this reason, verse 11, one of the most interesting verses in this passage, in my opinion. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they shall believe the lie, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The word delusion there is a very, very obscure word. We don't know what it means. But God in His supernatural sovereignty will allow the people, as He does in Romans chapter 1, to embrace the depravity of their heart. He will allow them to embrace the lie rather than the truth. He will give them over, as Paul said in the book of Romans chapter 1. But if I may, I'd like to bring your attention to a concept that has, of course, become very popular now in this last week. A doctor out of Belgium named Dr. Matthias Destin, for over a decade, has been studying a phenomenon called mass formation. Mass formation is the delusion that some operate under divorcing themselves from a reality and attaching themselves to something more. Or something different, I should say. That would be a better word. There are many, including this doctor from Belgium, who believe that partly what we are seeing in our country today that explains the irrationality, the, uh, the inability to have open dialogue about certain subjects, the issue of being canceled, when did it become that a person unvaccinated is the enemy and should be dealt with in such a harsh manner that in Australia they're dragging them to camps? What is happening in our world? I would encourage you to look for subject matter on this. 
Use DuckDuckGo, please, in doing so. But it is interesting. Now, I'm not saying that mass formation, some say mass formation psychosis, is this delusion, but it's interesting. Because as they describe it, you're just like, oh, wow, does that connect the dots? This is incredible. But we can easily see the events spoken of in the last days now fully coming to play. We see it now. I understand why Daniel was sick. It's getting harder and harder each and every day, isn't it? But let me share something with you in closing, if I may. It may encourage you. I'm always fascinated how God takes evil and turns it to good. And even when people perpetuate things against us for evil, God makes good out of it in some way. One had really written something fascinating about these empires concerning their, the events that are recorded in the scripture and how God used these events for his glory. The Babylonians were used by God to correct his people. After the 70-year captivity, the Israelites never went back to pagan worship again. Do you think they were better off in the long run after experiencing that moment, that 70 years of correction? I do. The chastening of God being used perfectly for his purposes. The Medes and the Persians, God used to allow the children of Israel through Cyrus, who is named by name by Isaiah, to allow the people to go back to the land. Incredible how God uses these things for his glory. When the Greeks came in, they unified the whole world under one language. And by doing so, communication was able to take place quicker and more rapidly than ever before in the known world. That's why the Bible, New Testament, is written in Greek. It was the most common language at that time. Even the Romans who were so cruel to the Jewish people, developed roads like never before. It is those roads that Paul walked upon from city to city, taking the gospel in to all the world. What is God going to do through this pandemic? Through the irrationality that we are currently experiencing? I'm not, I don't know yet. But when he does, I want to be part of it. Don't you? Maybe it's simply to show people that the world doesn't have the answers that only God has. And though we try to create a perfectly safe place, as long as sin reigns in the heart of the individual, this world will never be a safe place. Evil will always be amongst us. But even though that be true, notice that during the Roman Empire, God pierced the heavens, stepped out, and walked among his people, changing the world forever through the act of execution, the crucifixion of an individual, and the resurrection on the third day. God can use any circumstances. 
So let us begin to pray that in 2022, God would show us how he would use us at this time, at this moment, for his glory. And out of it all, what will come to pass that will further allow God to get the gospel out to all the world? Stay tuned, because I think we're in for a very fun ride. Let's pray.